Rays of the One Light, weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Kriyananda. Week 7. The law is perfected in love. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. In the Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, we read... The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace means the power to rise spiritually. Truth means the experience of divine realities, not the application in the outer world of that inner experience. Divine love is the soul's experience of oneness with God. Kindness is the human manifestation of that love. Grace is deeper than mere kindness. Wisdom is a divine experience. Justice to all is a human law, though divinely inspired. It follows as consequence of the experience of wisdom. Truth goes deeper than mere justice. While following the law, we should strive always to trace it back to its origins in the vision of God. Therefore, Krishna, in the Bhagavad Gita, urges the devotee not to be satisfied with the spiritual precepts alone but to go beyond them to the direct inner experience of truth. In the 18th chapter of that great scripture, he says, Nay, but what's more, take my last word, my utmost meaning have, precious there are to me, write well, beloved. Listen, I tell thee for thy comfort this, give me thy heart, adore me, serve me, Cling in faith and love and reverence to me. So shalt thou come to me, I promise true, for thou art sweet to me, and let, let go those rights and right duties, fly to me alone, make me thy single refuge, I will free thy soul from its sins, be of good cheer. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Om, Om, Om. Good morning, I'd like to welcome you all to Sunday service here at Ananda Village. My name is Atman, this is my wife Bhakti Marg. It's a great pleasure to share Sunday service here with you. I'd like to especially welcome those who are here with us as visitors and guests for the Valentine's Day holiday weekend and finding divine love. It's a great definition of love. Love is the experience of the inner reality of the soul realities of God. That's what love truly is. I'd like to continue with a reading from Whispers from Eternity. These are prayer demands by Paramahansa Yogananda. Thou art the Supreme Spirit, I am made in thine image. Thou art the Father, owner of the whole universe. I, good or naughty, am thy child, and when I behave, I have the right of possession over all that is thine. Alas, I have played the truant, wandering away from thy home of cosmic plenty. Lead me home again. Teach me to identify my highest interests with thy will. Rescue me from this shipwreck, on the tiny island of my body. Expand my consciousness. Help me understand once more that I am made in thy image. When by thy grace, 
I discover that I, like thee, am omnipresent, then at last shall I have true dominion over all things, even as thou hast. So when God created the universe, he started with the unmanifest, infinite oneness, and it moved outward into manifestation, into duality, into the creation, into this universe, and all these universes. And when that moved out, there was a force that pulled it out. But fortunately, there was also a force that pulled it back towards oneness. And that force, that power to arise spiritually, to find our home back in the center, that is grace. And that is what we're talking about today. As we talked about last week, we're going to continue with that. That pull out inward, balanced by the pull outward. Why is there a pull outward? Well, if there was no pull outward, we just immediately go back to oneness in God and there would be no creation. So there's this tension. There's the centrifugal pull, the satanic force, the pull of materialism, of duality. It's making us move out into this creation. But fortunately, as I said, there's that pull backward, the centripetal force toward the center, that pull of oneness, that pull of grace. And all true religion, all true spiritual teachings are nothing more than roadmaps or aids or helps for us to tune into that inward pulling force, for us to get onto that path that brings us back into unity. And there's many, many parts to that, those religions, to those spiritual paths, to those things. And they all tune into different parts of that. For example, different masters come at different times in, the, in history and the history of men's consciousness and the history of evolution of a planet. And as it speaks about in the reading, Moses, who was a true master, Yogananda said, came at a time when the Jewish people were turning towards God, were turning to try to live a spiritual life. But what was really needed at that point was a series of, of guidelines, of restrictions, of laws. Moses brought the law. It was ways to live, ways that the Jewish people could begin to live, that they could move themselves more into attunement, more into the possibility of opening to that divine grace. But first, their lives after four centuries of slavery in Egypt needed to be molded to be able to start living a religious life. And so the emphasis of Moses was the law. It was the Ten Commandments. It was all the lesser laws of how to live life, how to organize oneself in their search for God. At other times in history and other places, it's different. The Buddha, for example, came at a time when Hinduism in India was emphasizing ritual. It was emphasizing everything was done by God's grace. That everyone was, by doing the right mantra, the right prayer, the right Vedic ceremony, everything would be taken care of. And what he emphasized was a move back the other way, a move of more of self-effort, of needing to put one's own energy, not just leaving it all to God. And as it says in the reading again, Jesus came. And Jesus brought, it says, brought grace and truth. So he added another step to this, uh, what was then the, the Jewish religion, which became Christianity. And that was speaking of a outright of this grace, of this need to tune into a higher power of God's love, of be able to reach out for that and and to see it. What happened with that? Also, the pendulum perhaps swung a little bit more the other way again. And Christianity now tends to emphasize, or a lot of Christian teachings tend to say, well, it's 
you know, we're saved through Jesus. If we believe in Jesus, everything will be okay. And there's, you know, what happened to the, what happened to the self-effort? What happened to the us living the spiritual life? It's just a matter of belief. And then in this century, again, at a, a time when consciousness is moving upward, thank goodness, we're in an ascending yuga, our guru came, Yogananda, and he brought a teachings that in some ways combined a lot of different ones. It combined all this. He emphasized the need for following the moral precepts of a good spiritual life. He emphasized techniques. He gave us ways that we could open ourselves up, that we could reach that grace. But he also brought us, again, the emphasis of the need for devotion. He says, you, have to, you can't make it on your own. You're not going to make it just through techniques. You also have to reach out. You have to reach out towards that higher power, towards that, those winds of grace. And Swami Kriyananda wrote a book uh, called Cooperating with Grace. And I just, I just love that image of the grace is there. It's, it's there for us to tune into. It's like sun shining on the outside of a building. And we're trapped inside that building with the shutters closed and the shades drawn and huddled in a corner. And the grace is out there. We just have to go and open the window and open those shutters and let that grace shine in for us. We have to cooperate with it. We have to do our part of opening those shutters. So with Yogananda's teachings, there's a lots of different aspects to this, to this cooperating with grace. And everything that he brought, all the techniques, all the myriad ways of organizing our lives have to do with how we can tune into this pulling force because we're not really going to just make it on our own. We're not going to make it with these techniques. The technique of Kriya Yoga is an incredibly powerful technique. It moves the energy in the spine. It purifies us. It gets things going the right way. But when you stop and think about all the millions of lifetimes that we've had in the past and all the desires and all the little vortices of energy that are trapped there in the spine, it could take us a really long time to get rid of those one by one. So it's this, it's this power to rise spiritually, this grace that they talked about that we really need to tune into. And so how do we do that? There's uh, various aspects to it. And fortunately, the teachings of Yogananda, of Raja Yoga, the tradition is a incredibly complete package and there's all aspects of that that we can tune into and I just want to highlight a, a few maybe because we often tend to think of oh the laws the ten commandments you know we don't really you know, we're beyond that we don't really need those moral precepts and you know, maybe those moral precepts are just something to help society not be chaotic you know it's a good social it's a good social norm to not kill each other and to tell the truth. But, but it's really a much, much deeper thing than that. And there are moral precepts in virtually every religious teaching and every spiritual path. And, and this, the path of Raja Yoga is no exception. There's the, the yamas and the niyamas. And so what do they have to do with, with finding grace and this pull inward versus this pull outward? Well, let's, let's look first at the the forces that are arrayed on that centrifugal side, that satanic force. You know, what happens to us? Why are we not all just one with God? Well, there's material desire and there's sense pleasure and we think that that's where we're going to find happiness and where we're going to go. And pretty soon that search for sense pleasures and material desire gets us wrapped up in self-definitions of who we are, of the ego, and we become attached to these things that define us and 
And it goes beyond that. We get greedy for things that aren't really our own, and we start looking outside and trying to take from other places in the creation and try to go farther. And next thing you know, we've lost sight of what is reality, and we're manipulating reality in our own manner to make it look so we can get more of these sense pleasures and more of these good things. And we've separated ourselves completely from this creation and from our oneness, and the next thing you know, we're doing violence to other living forms just to satisfy this ego. So it's pretty grim. But <laughs> if you look at the yamas and the niyamas, there it is. This is what we have to do. So for the sense pleasures, we have the, the, uh, the yama or the constraint of sense control, or brahmacharya. It says, don't let your energy just go out willy-nilly into those senses because it's going to lead you that's, uh, down that path of, of dissolution, of dis, of separation. And on the positive side, the niyamas, or the observances, we have the tapasya. Instead of letting that energy go outward, bring that energy inward and upward. Take that energy and move it to somewhere else. That austerity is looking for something different. We have that acceptance, or that uh, we have that identification of the ego, those things, those attachments. And we have the, niya, the yama of non-acceptance, or not accepting that we have these identifications, that we have these realities. And on the positive side of that, we have the, the urge for self-study. Instead of trying to identify with these out ones, try to identify with what you really are. What is it that I'm really, truly? Look at yourself, introspect, the self-study. And when you get pulled out into coveting, avarice, greed, those things around you, we have the, the yama of non-avarice, non-covetousness, covetousness. And we have the niyama of contentment. Just be content. Practice contentment with what we have. You don't need to look. You don't need to covet your neighbor's wife and your neighbor's things and steal things. And when we move up into the things of your creating this untruth in this world, this, this, this not really tuning into what is real, the, we have the, the injunction against lying, non-lying. Just try to stay in what is truth. And on the positive side, the niyama, we have ourselves looking at at uh, devotion, of really giving ourselves to what we know is true, to the universal one where we're trying to go to. And last, of course, when we get into that violent mode, there's practicing ahimsa, or nonviolence, and we practice purity on the niyama side, or just cleansing ourselves of all that complication, of all that chaos inside us. So we have the niyamas and niyamas, which are important moral precepts. Yogananda also brought, of course, the techniques of meditation. And this is the yoga and meditation of calming the body, moving the energies inside the body, trying to, again, open those windows to grace, cooperate with that grace. You have to get rid of all this mental chaos that's going on that's keeping us away from perceiving that, all these false identifications, all these desires. And meditation is the, is the, the best technique, the best way to do that, to, to ground yourself in that true reality of peace, of oneness, just even with glimpses, because if you can start to glimpse that, you can start to open yourself up. You can, you can take that, that cup, which is turned upside down, the cup of your consciousness, with all these muddy waters, and you can turn it right side up, and you can start to hold it out, and you can start to fill it, fill that chalice with that grace, which is always there, which is always coming to you, which is always moving into that oneness. So there's a... I just wanted... There's a couple things that I need to say because it's something that I've found little pitfalls in my life that um, 
I wanted to share with you. So we all know the teachings, you know, the yamas and niyamas, you've all you've probably heard of it, you all know meditation techniques, most likely, and you've all done some reading, but what's one of the pitfalls on the spiritual path that I think is particularly apt in our modern time? And that is the, the sense that because you know something, or you know where that knowledge is, then you've mastered it. So it's, it's in our, in this age of the internet, of, of massive inundation of knowledge, of, of academic learning, of all these things coming to us, we tend to think, and we tend to approach life, and it's a self-preservation thing in our life because we have so much knowledge coming to us, we have to sort through it. We have to just say, okay, I know that, and I, that's over here, and that's over here, that's good, and I know where to get that. And, you know, one thing is if you're an engineer and you're trying to find the heat transfer in a machine, it's good, okay, you know where the equations are, you don't have to really memorize those or do anything, you just go use them when you need them. But in the spiritual path, it doesn't work like that. And we still tend to do that, don't we? I mean, we have, how many of us have beautiful bookshelves full of spiritual books, all lined up neatly by title and things? But they don't do any good up there unless you're actually reading them or doing something with them. And so most of us, you know, most of us have gone beyond that somewhat, although I have a lot of spiritual books on my shelf that are pretty dusty, I have to admit. But, you know, a lot of us have studied it, though. Okay, so we've gotten into the knowledge and we've studied that. There's also another pitfall, though, and that's equating intellectual attainment somehow with spiritual attainment. And you, we study all these things, we read all these things, we get all the concepts put together, we know how it all works. Yeah, the vrittis and this and the astral body and the nettis and this. So what? <laughs> it's good if you need to have an argument with somebody. <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily move you towards opening your shutters to the grace that's coming in. It doesn't necessarily ha- help you unless you practice it. So this is a, I'm leaving you with two thoughts today. This is one of them, because often Sunday service, you know, you get inspired, and then you leave, and you go, what did he say? <laughs> so this is, one of, this is the first thought. You have to practice. You have to practice the teachings. Okay, that's important. It doesn't do enough to have the energization app on your smartphone. <laughs> you can push the play button, and the guy could be energizing away, but... It's not going to do anything for you. Maybe someday we'll get smartphones and you just hold them to your spiritual eye and you get energized. But, but you have to practice. And it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very sad, actually, because I knew someone who lived here some years ago who was very much into this intellectual pursuit. And he would always be reading a new book and getting a new theory. He'd want to engage me in these discussions. And he said, well, did you hear what Larry Marsh said about this? And Asam Prajnati Samadhi and this and that. He's not here anymore. And, you know, I don't think he really meditated all that much. I think he just got wrapped up in the chaos of his mind and just, you know, went around in circles in there. And so you have to practice. Okay, the next part, you have all these practices, but what was the other part that Yogananda brought together with this? That was what we talked about before. It's that devotion. It's that need to reach up to something higher. So this is the second one we're leaving with you. You have to practice and you have to reach up. So the two things, you have to do all the teachings, all the practices, but you also have to reach up that devotion, that moving towards something higher, that reaching up for that power to rise spiritually, for that grace. And it's, it's something that the Bhagavad Gita talked about in this reading is, you know, adore me, come to me, cling to me. You are pleasing to me in any devotion. You have, you have to keep your minds 
on what that goal is. It doesn't do anything to just go into this these practices because you can create you can create a healthier body, you can create better concentration, but you can also create a spiritual ego where you think you're doing it, that you're the one that's caught in that. But again, it's this balance. And there's a, a good story that Tom Swami tells in the New Path that a fellow disciple named Debbie Mukherjee uh, was a disciple at, at Mount Washington, and Yogananda once chastised him for being a little bit too light and a little bit too joking all the time. And he said, yes, Master, I want to change, but you know, how can I change without your grace? And Master scolded him quite severely. He said, my grace is there. God's grace is there. It's your effort, your grace that's lacking. So it's not just, oh, just give it all up to God and he'll take care of that. It's finding this balance. And it's, Swami says in the path, it said, it's not just, you know, again, this intellectual attainment, this, this thinking about it isn't enough. He says, every devotee must do hand-to-hand combat with his own delusions. And so you really have to balance these techniques, these laws, following all the moral precepts, following the meditation techniques, the yoga asanas, with this sense of devotion. And there's a very uh, telling story from Swami's life in the path about this. When he was uh, a monk at Mount Washington, after he'd been there for some months, he he found himself um, really feeling a spiritual attainment, feeling joy, feeling divine love coming. And he became a little bit um, attached to that, a little bit proud of it. And he, he, he found himself being a little bit aloof from the concerns of the world and from others and just you know, really reveling in this, this spiritual attainment. And then he realized that he was, he was this, wasn't, this wasn't quite right because there was a certain pride to this, a certain sense of, a, of identification with it, of, of him personally doing it and grabbing onto this spiritual attainment. So he moved the other way. He said, okay, I have to develop humility. I have to develop humbleness. I have to give this up to God. So he started practicing, God, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? What should I do? And he said he found himself getting into this, uh, I guess what the Christians call scrupulosity. But he started creating this incredible chaos of vortex. He said, you know, of, of telling himself that God wanted him, no, don't eat this, don't sit here, don't go there, don't say that, do this, no over here. And he said he got, he got himself into this whole chaos. And then he, he just realized he just created this in his own mind. There was nothing else going on that he just had gotten into this whole confusion. And at that point, Master had said to some of the other monks, he said, Walter is just, he's really confused. <laughs> Walter's really confused, but he's coming, he'll get it. And at that point, Yogananda told him to go out to, to the 29 Palms, out to the desert, for, and he was there for three months, basically mostly by himself. He, sometimes he was with Master when he was dictating his Gita commentaries, but the majority of the time he was, he was really there just on his own, and he said it was a, a very, very difficult time. He would, he would try to meditate, he would try to tune in, doubts would come, he would doubt Master, he would doubt the path, he didn't know what he was supposed to be doing. And, you know, he eventually, after three months of being by himself and working this, he eventually worked through this. And then he said, at that point, I, you know, I understood more how to balance these things of, of looking for that grace, of looking for the devotion, but also putting in the self-effort, but not being attached to the self-effort as the doer, giving that energy up, giving it back up to God. So it was a, he writes that story for us in The New Path. It's a very good lesson for us. So you have to reach up.
And I just I wanted to share something also that um, I had a recent experience of this myself. I had a great fortune of taking seclusion a couple weeks ago, and you know, in, in seclusion, seclusion is an incredibly important practice. I'm a little digression here. We're um, the path that's given to us is one of being in the world but not of the world. We're actually all trying to live lives where we're making money, we're out running businesses, we're out running communities, we're out working for jobs. And at the same time, we need to hold on to these spiritual teachings and we need to hold on to devotion, we need to hold on to reaching for grace, we need to hold on to these moral precepts. And it's not always easy because by and large, the world out there is it's farther out on the centrifugal satanic pole than it is toward the grace pole, I can tell you that. You all know that. So even here at Ananda Village, I mean, it's not always easy to do that. And this is why seclusion is so critically important because it's a time when you try to really consciously put yourself in an environment where you are cooperating with grace in every single way you can. And we all try to do that in our lives all the time, but it's not always easy to do. And it's, you know, it's, if, we could all, if we could do it all the time, we could just go to the Himalayas and meditate for 18 hours a day. But we're not quite there. We're still open to these pulls. To, we're still susceptible to these other forces. So it doesn't work so well for us. But we can take a day. We can take a weekend. We can take a week. We can take a month where we go to seclusion and we find a quiet place. We are in silence. We stop interacting. We stop talking. We give up the responsibilities of our day-to-day life. Our only responsibility is cooperating with grace through meditation, through the practices, through satsang with spiritual books, through listening to tapes, anything you can do. And it's just, it's such an incredibly powerful and important practice that I, you know, if you, I urge you, if you haven't gotten into doing that or if you haven't scheduled your seclusion for this year, do it. And, you know, there's wonderful, many wonderful places to do it, but, of course, my favorite is, of course, the meditation retreat because it's so quiet, it's so inward, the vibrations are so still there. It, you can do it at your own home, but it's hard because you're still, those pulls are there, those reminders of those other things. All right, okay, that's a digression. So I was in seclusion uh, last couple weeks ago, and, you know, I was doing my meditation and my practices, and... I was getting more deeply into it day by day, and I was, you know, I was feeling a lot of joy and a lot of bliss, but, you know, there was at one point I was just feeling, you know, God, I'm doing all this, and, you know, I just really want to feel your love. I just really want to feel that devotion in the heart. And, you know, I wasn't feeling it so much. And now that I was going, oh, come on, I'm not feeling it, you know, what's going on? (laughs) And then I remembered, you have to reach up. You have to ask. You have to move toward it. So as I was sitting there and one evening in the temple at the meditation retreat and I was chanting and I wasn't feeling anything, it got, occurred to me, I said, okay, Master, what do you want me to chant? Divine Mother, what do you want me to do? And at that point, I you know, received an answer. An answer came to me of what I should chant and I started chanting Blue Lotus Feet and it was, it was the most blissful experience of the whole seclusion. That, uh, you know, I just felt this wonderful wave of divine love that opened up. So it works. You have to ask. You have to reach up. And, you know, it's, I have to remind myself that time sometimes because you get busy, you get into this, and you don't reach out. You say, okay, what do you want me to do, Master? What should I do here? What's the right thing? How do I reach for that grace? Your grace is out there. What am I doing to block it? How do I move farther beyond that? It's a very, very important practice. I just want to 
and with a little bit of a an image, a visualization that's I've always loved when I think about grace. And that's, you know, just picture yourselves, we're all these little ships of our ego consciousness, our our soul manifestation into the body, into this into these incarnations. And we're out there floating on the sea of delusion in our little ship. And we've been out there for millions of incarnations just being tossed around, not knowing where we're going. The currents of material desire point us one way. We have a crew that's been on of our mental tendencies on this boat who don't always cooperate, don't really know how to sail the boat, don't really know where we're going, get us into, get us into all kinds of difficulties of one thing or another, and here we are, you know, millions of incarnations. And finally... The anguishing monotony of us being adrift on a sea of delusion gets to be too much. And we start looking. And lo and behold, there in our ship, we find, we find the manual, how to sail the ship. (laughs) And there's a whole discipline in there for the crew, all those mental tendencies we start to bring into a line with each other so we know how to raise the sails, we know how to use the rudder, we're getting pretty good. We know how to move the ship. And then there's still something missing. And we discover on our ship there's a little radio. And we turn the radio on, and through practice we start tuning, and we get the voice of the guru. And the voice of the guru comes into our ship and says, this is what you need to do. Raise the sails and catch that grace, catch that wind of divine grace. And we are now, all of us, on the spiritual path. We've managed to get our crew together. We've raised our sails. We're catching that wind. Sometimes we still have storms. Sometimes the sails fall down. Sometimes the currents pull us off course. We still tune our radios. We read the manual. We know where we're going. And we're making great progress. That wind is pushing us towards our home in God, towards the shores of self-realization. May your journey be blessed.